Recorded live.
Good morning, Northern Maine. Good morning, Northern Maine. Welcome to the Northern Maine Landman Show on the Constitutional Radio Network, the Conscience of Maine. Broadcast in Maine today on WXME, 780 AM in Monticello, 1700 AM in Lewiston, 88.1 FM in Westbrook and Orono, 96.5 FM in Brewer, Bangor, Maine. Hearing this on Saturday, September 24th, 2016. And it's sunny, mostly sunny at least. Uh, high near 59, northwest winds 8 to 13 miles an hour. Tonight, partly cloudy, low around 38. 38. Northwest wind around 7 miles an hour. Had a frost this morning in the low spots. Sunday, Mostly sunny, high near 55, northwest wind 10 to 30 miles an hour. Sunday night, partly cloudy, low around 38, northwest wind 7 to 10 miles an hour. And then Monday, sunny with a high near 61, northwest wind 7 miles an hour. Northwest wind is the fair wind, fair weather direction. Clear, cold, blue sky, I mean really dark blue sky. Clean air. Uh, that's good weather. When she swings around the south, southwest, uh, it's, it's high humidity and dampness and drizzly rain. Swings around to the south to east, generally it's going to be uh, blustery and uh, changeable weather. And then it swings around to the northeast. we got nor'easters in the wintertime and Northeast in the summertime is just a, a rainy day. And then you don't get it right straight out of the north much. But when the northeast wind stops and the front comes through from the northwest, then you get northwest wind. The old-timers knew all this stuff. And they knew that when the horsetails come in, you get fair weather, and all of a sudden you start looking up, and they have what they call horsetails. The horse has really long hair in his tail, and they... Make violin strings out of it, and they uh, they uh, the horse tails are coming in high in the sky, kind of a curve on the end. As, excuse me, as the as the air uh, comes in, you get cool, dry air. It's coming in from from the west, and then it swings into the southwest, you know it's going to rain the next day. So, the gas price. Gas price in Newport is $1.94, it's down $0.05. Cents. Gas price in Rangeley is $2.59. And, you know, that's that's $0.63 cents higher than uh, the low price in Newport. It's not all that far. But if the leaf peepers get driving up into Rangeley, looking at the beautiful scenery and the lake, and it's just spectacular. There's some really good restaurants in Rangeley and some of the best onion soup this side of the Canadian border. So they, uh, people ride up there and they roll into Rangeley and they say, oh, okay, I probably ought to fill up. It's 2.59, so 45 cents more than the price in Newport. You don't have much choice when you're in Rangeley, Maine. The diesel in uh, South Portland is two dollars and nineteen cents, and the uh, Diesel is two dollars and sixty-four cents in New Gloucester. I mentioned Rangeley. I meant to mention also that gas is two dollars and thirty-nine cents in New Gloucester. Aside from Rangeley, that's the most expensive gas in the state. But they've come down some in New Gloucester. They finally started to back off, and that's that's the uh, what do they call it? The penny store in New Gloucester. He's starting to lower his prices a little bit. He's finally getting down to the point where 
that gas that he bought that was so expensive is starting to be depleted. So he's starting to, starting to lower his price. But he's, he hasn't lowered his price for diesel. <laughs> diesel is $2.64. And uh, he's still selling the high price stuff that he bought when it was high price. They can't do a whole lot of volume in the penny store in New Gloucester. We've got an apple seed coming up next weekend, October 1st and 2nd in Monmouth. Monmouth is a great range. They put on a good uh, good feed for us uh, at noontime. Uh, you know, you, it's, it's a very economical lunch. You pay for it, but they're not making any money. They're just breaking even there at the club, and they got a few guys that come in and put the lunch on for us. And we teach marksmanship. And we teach history. History is is an adventure. It's spellbinding. Some of the people, when they hear it, they get tears in their eyes. Some of the people, when they tell it, they get tears in their eyes. Because the names become so familiar to us over time. I became a an Appleseed instructor more than five years ago and became a shoot boss shortly thereafter. And I'm the only shoot boss in Maine. i got to train my replacement. So we've got some good people coming along, good young people. I would say they're in their 30s, young and vigorous, and uh, half my age. And they're the next generation coming up. And we need them. I sure wish we could find a place to shoot in Arista County think some, an area as big as Rooster County would have a range where we could hold an apple seed. People say, yeah, that'd be a good idea. Find us a range. And one guy wanted to let us use his farm, and there's no backstop. You just can't shoot targets with no backstop for the bullets. You know, bullets ricochet. And uh, a ricocheted bullet can, can travel a long ways, especially when fired from a, an AR-15 or even heavier, like the 308. That's uh, that's the M14 and the M1. You can buy an M1 from the Department of Civilian Marksmanship. It's a DCM rifle. And DCM, the Department of Civilian Marksmanship, was created back around during the World War One era. We knew from our history, that marksmanship was greatly important. You know, the days in Europe when the kings used to get together and they decide to hold a war because they had a bad crop year. It was dreary and it was cold and they had crop failures. And the citizens, their subjects, I should say, not citizens, their subjects were getting grumpy about food shortages, so they just decided they'll thin out the population. And they'd hold a war. And they'd get great armies to line up opposite each other and charge at each other and hack each other and spear each other and shoot with arrows and clubs. And eventually one of the sides would give up and the war would be over. Maybe somebody would take over some territory, maybe not. That's what they did. And they did it for thousands of years. Trying to take over croplands, territory, natural resources of all kinds, timber and metals. And we carried that idea forward into World War One, And they had trench warfare. They'd have two opposite sides, you know, 100 yards apart, quarter of a mile apart, whatever. And they'd jump out of the trenches and they'd charge over to get, try to defeat the other guys. And they'd slaughtered literally millions of people. And finally, the Germans ran out of the resources they need to hold the war. And they surrendered. And they had a... They had... A, they had to pay reparations, which really hurt their economy. 
So without belaboring that whole point, marksmanship has determined the course of history many, many times. And we talk about that, and we train for that, because people that understand history know that it's going to repeat itself. But the next few wars, you know, war isn't over with. They call the World War One the war to end all wars. Nah. They took a break, and then they had World War Two. And we we defeated tyranny in World War Two for many reasons, but the primary reason was that our soldiers were better marksmen than the enemy. Now the Germans had some really good snipers, but not a lot. We had our soldiers as a group were better shooters than the enemy, and that's why we prevailed. Because you don't hold a piece of ground until you've got an infantryman standing on it. You can pound the heck out of somebody from the air, and until you can take it and put your soldier on the ground, you don't control it. We proved that in Vietnam. We spent a whole pile of money bombing the Ho Chi Minh Trail. And the North Vietnamese still came down the Ho Chi Minh Trail with backpacks and bicycles. They made bicycles uh, that you didn't ride. The, the bicycle was just something to carry a pack on. You can, you can roll more weight along the ground than you can putting it on your back. You see, see, see people on, going along the road today in parts of America, in parts of Maine, where somebody's walking along the road with a bicycle with some packs on it. It's an efficient way. It's more efficient to move something on a bicycle than it is to walk with it on with a 60-pound pack on your back. So we teach marksmanship in, in addition to the history. We apply marksmanship to the history of what happened on April 19th 1775, but we also look to the future, and in the future, in our nation, there may be a time when a lot of high-powered rifle fire attracts unwanted attention, and what we teach is how to sight in a rifle. You don't need a use up a couple of boxes of ammunition sighting in a rifle. We teach our shooters to be able to keep their rounds within a four-minute of angle pattern. If you can shoot a four-inch group at 100 yards, that's the same thing as a one-inch group at 25 yards. Or an eight-inch group at 200 yards. 12-inch group at 300 yards. 16-inch group at 400 yards, and at 500 yards, a 4 mil minute of angle is 20 inches. Well, what's 20 inches? On the average person, 20 inches is the distance between his two shoulders. So if you can put rounds reliably into a 20-inch square at 500 yards, that's what we want you to know. That's what we teach. So you go out, and we teach how to sight in a rifle. So you go out to the range with your SKS that you bought from somebody at a yard sale. You got an SKS laying there on the on the picnic table at the yard sale. That's a semi-automatic rifle that takes a seven by thirty-nine ammunition. That's seven seven millimeters by. 39 millimeter length of the case. That's the metric way of measuring. You pick up an SKS and you take it out to the pit and you get down the prone position. Use a rest if you need to, but just get down the prone position correctly and go through the six steps of firing the shot. I'm not going to cover all of that, but that's what you do. Go to an apple seed to find out but you squeeze that trigger, bam. You down, you look at the target. 
at 25 yards, by the way, which is 82 feet. And you show, you know that when you squeeze that trigger, the sights were dead on the target. You know that. So you make a sight adjustment based on, on the correction. Maybe it was four inches to the right and three inches high. Okay? So you make the necessary correction on your sights on the rifle. And then the following weekend, you go out to the same range or a different range. And you set up a target at 100 yards. 100 yards, it's a four-inch group. So you, you take a round, you put it in the rifle. And you get down the prone position, get nestled in, steady as can be. You squeeze that trigger, bang, okay. And it turns out that it's it's about two inches high and an inch left. But you knew it was dead on when you squeezed the trigger. You spent five minutes lining up that shot, and you knew it was dead on, okay. So you make a correction based on that. And following a week or 10 days later, maybe on a Wednesday, you go out to that same 100-yard range and you squeeze the trigger. And lo and behold, it's right in there. It's maybe an inch high, to maybe it's two inches left and one inch high. Well, you're in there now. We also teach you how to make corrections for 200 yards, 300 yards, 400 yards, and 500 yards. Suppose you, you buy a rifle from the Department of Civilian Marksmanship. We give you a green piece of paper that says you have participated in an apple seed shoot that qualifies you to buy an M1 rifle from the Department of Civilian Marksmanship, DCM. You send in your, your card in a deposit, and you wait. Six, eight, ten weeks later, they'll send you a notification. Okay, this is going to be your rifle. This is the serial number of the rifle. You send us the money, we send you the rifle. The rifle actually goes to your local gun shop, whoever you choose, and it has to be legally transferred. But you can buy an M1, and they have four levels. They have, first of all, the M1 is totally disassembled and all new parts put in as necessary. These rifles have come back from South Korea, Taiwan, Greece, and various other countries, NATO countries, that you know, have made the M1 obsolete. They've gone to uh, gone to uh, Fabrique Nationale, uh, NATO, NATO rifles, the semi-automatic with magazines. The M1 has an eight-round clip, not a magazine. So you can you put your put your clip in the M1. You rack the bolt. And you've got eight rounds to go. And it's a good, accurate rifle. General George Patton said it was the finest battle implement ever devised by man. That's a pretty high compliment. When you figure you got you got P fifty one Mustangs flying overhead and they see that the M one is the finest battle implement ever devised by man. But it's a good rifle. It's a rugged rifle. It'll last you a lifetime, it'll last your grandson a lifetime. These M1s have been reconditioned. And what we refer to is, is a rack-grade rifle. It's an ordinary rifle out of, the, out of the rack at an armory. And soldiers would sight in their own rifles, and they'd, got, they'd put information on them. But between 100 yards and 200 yards is up three clicks. Two to 300 is up three clicks. Three to 400 is up three clicks, and 400 to 500 is up four clicks. Light it up. That's 13 clicks up from the 100-yard target 
out to 500 yards. 13 clicks is 13 minutes of angle. What's 13 times 5? 13 to 13 is 26. That doubled is 52. And another 13 is 62 plus 3 is 65 inches. So at 500 yards, you're going to be 65 inches above where you were at 100 yards. In other words, that bullet's going to drop 65 inches at 500 yards. So if you hold a little high, thinking that that's going to be adequate, and it's not 300 yards, it's 500 yards, that bullet's going to go right underneath that deer, underneath that moose. This is a 30-odd six, and it will drop 65 inches at 500 yards. 65 inches, about five and a half feet. It's quite a bullet drop. But you can still keep it in a 20-inch square if you make your sight corrections properly. So you have to write down your sight dope for your rifle. Put it, tape it with clear packaging tape right to your, right to your, it doesn't have to be white paper, it can be tan paper so it doesn't stand out. But that's just a real brief thumbnail sketch of, of how to do this. And as I say, it could come up time in our country if something terrible happens to us, like the election of Hillary Clinton, for example. We don't talk about that at Appleseed, but we can talk about it on the radio. Hillary Clinton gets elected, there's going to be firearm confiscation in our nation. Now, Connecticut passed a law, no magazines. It'll hold 10, 10 rounds or more, which includes the 1022. That's the most popular 22 rifle in the entire world is the Ruger 1022. Very reliable, very accurate. You can do some things to fine-tune it, which I do. But uh, basically, it's a, it's a really good basic training rifle, and we refer to it as the Liberty Training Rifle. It takes marksmanship to retain our liberty. And I, I was down, <laughs> I was down uh, at the legislature. I go down four or five times a year to familiarize our new legislators with property rights. And we have we have property rights in our country. And. Many of the legislators are unfamiliar with such a notion, and that's too bad. But we can we can begin to correct that. But somebody has to tell them, because they don't know, and the establishment is not going to tell them. The establishment has their own agenda, which is separate from the agenda of the people. This is true at the at the state level, the federal level, and sometimes at the municipal level. The town of Lincoln took some tax increment financing money and they bought this giant fiberglass loon and they're going to put it right at the top of the hill. When you come up off of West Broadway in Lincoln and you pull up and right in front of you when you stop at the red light, you look out across that lake and between where you're sitting on Main Street in Lincoln and U.S. Route 1 in Topsfield, there is not one paved road all the way out as far as you can see and as far as you can see from the air. Not one paved road. So Main Street in Lincoln is the end of the paved road going to the east. Now you got Route 6 there, but you can go right straight. You snap a string from Waite, Maine to Lincoln, Maine, and there's not a paved road all the way across that map. And the town of Lincoln has decided to spend tax inc increment financing funds to buy a giant fiberglass loon and stick it right there where you, <laughs> it's going to block the view. <laughs> I tell you, I just, government, you know, even at the local level, sometimes gets silly. And when you've got a town like Lincoln where the mill has closed and they have to tighten their belts, why in the world would you spend a pile of money to buy a gigantic fiberglass loom 
I can't think of another town in the state of Maine that would do that. Just boggles the mind. Legislator came up to Lincoln for a listening session a few years ago, and they would talk. This legislator was on the redistricting committee, and they, as populations change, they have to move district boundaries because districts have to have this, this very similar number of voters in each district. So it's like the tide going out. You know, Rooster County used to have three House representatives. Now they've got two. Eventually they might have one. As the tide goes down, 50% of Maine's population lives within 50 miles of Congress Street in Portland. There are three House members in Portland within walking distance of each other because of the way the district lines happen to fall and where they happen to live. They can walk over to the other guy's house. You can't do that in Aroostook County. It's more than a day's walk between two representatives' houses. So half of the area within that 50-mile circle is water. You go east from Portland, that's the Atlantic Ocean. Or the Gulf of Maine, whatever you want to call it, but it's salt water. And they've got a huge amount of clout down there. Portland has been referred to as Provincetown North. They celebrate diversity. And they think differently than the people that live more than 50 miles from Portland. You get 50 miles South of Portland, down in Elliott, for example. Elliott's a small conservative town, and they're good people. North Berwick is just up the road from Elliott. It's on the New Hampshire state line. We had an apple seed there two weeks ago. Good people, good NRA people. They've got the ladies of NRA having an event there this weekend. Well, the women of the NRA, I guess. They're out, all out there practicing and and uh, helping each other, educating each other. One of the things they teach is, is firearms in the home, keeping your home safe. And, uh, you know, you don't want children playing with firearms. You've got to secure the firearms, keep it away from them. At the same time, you need to have a system where you can readily access the firearm. And, of course, the easiest way is to simply have it on your person. We have a right to do that in Maine. That right shall not be questioned. It's in the Constitution. So, we uh, spoke last week briefly about our five referendums. And I went to, last week was Constitution Week. And we commemorate those who wrote the Constitution, approved the Constitution, created it. It's one of the finest documents ever created by man, is the the United States Constitution. But it's being being forgotten. And as I said last week, and it's worth repeating, I I went to Husson this week to a Constitution Week event at the Gracie Auditorium at Husson. And it was a good event. Uh, they had uh, six or seven, no, they had seven or eight speakers. And when they were done, they asked, you know, any of the members of the audience to ask a question for, for anybody or to make a statement. And so, you know, <laughs> wind me up and press the button. I stood up. I wouldn't have said anything if they hadn't invited me. But they invited the audience, and I was the our second or third one to stand up. And two of them asked simple questions about the referendum. And I stood up and I talked a little bit about citizenship because Larry Willie is running for the state senate. He's from Bangor. He's an attorney. He's a good guy. You know, some people rant about the Maine Bar Association and attorneys in general, but some of these guys are good guys and they understand the Constitution. Larry carries a Constitution in his pocket every day. And he says, is there anybody else here that does that? Well, I whipped mine out and I stuck it up in the air where everybody could see it. And 
There's my constitution. I carry one every day. When it wears out, I'll give it to somebody. And the fact that it's kind of worn is is impressive. I mean, it's, I mean somebody has looked at it, actually referred to it, and used it. And they got stuff underlined and highlighted, and they got a little mark on the edge of the paper to make it easier to find stuff, like the various amendments. But I said, you know, when I went to school, which is obviously a long time ago because I have white hair, when I went to school, we took civics. And some schools call it government. They took government. And it was a required course. You had to pass that course to graduate from high school. Everybody took civics. Everybody took government. We created good citizens. Because if you understand what the government is and how it works or how it's supposed to work, you'll be a better citizen and a better voter. And I said down there that, you know, back in the ancient ancient Greece and ancient Rome, uh, the Greeks got an earlier stop. They had a big civil... <coughs> Pardon me. The Greeks got an earlier start, and they had a better a better system, uh, a more advanced civilization earlier than Rome did. And, of course, they, had, they were a crossroads. The Silk Route from Asia came across uh, what is now Iran and Iraq and Turkey and right to the Dardanelles, which is the, the waterway between the Mediterranean and the Black Sea. Got a young fellow who's from Georgia in uh, in in what is used to be part of the Soviet Union, but they were always a country. And they were had they were the, they were a people, the people from Georgia. I met met this young fellow last night at a, at a public supper. Public suppers are great events in Maine, but. If you were going to be a citizen in ancient Greece and ancient Rome, you were just more than just part of that people. You were more than just uh, an ordinary person in, in the community. Being a citizen meant that you were a watchdog. You were a participant in the affairs of state. And you voted over the over the years Voting was not accorded to slaves back in the ancient days. And voting was not uh, accorded to foreigners. You had to be a declared citizen. And you could be adopted into a community and become a citizen by your own work and participation. And you could vote. But citizenship involved personal responsibility and contribution to society in some way, help to get, help to run the place. Doesn't doesn't mean dominate it or be a tyrant of some kind. It just means help your community go smoothly. You know, get a bridge built, get a viaduct run, bring water into the city. You know, Rome had great viaducts. They diverted streams and rivers and had viaducts that were two or three hundred feet in the air running downhill to Rome, good fresh water from the mountains. And it was, it, the whole system worked efficiently until it fell apart through corruption. So they keep an eye on that. That's what citizens do. We're having a, uh, a referendum this coming right up. And we spoke, they spoke about that. Several people spoke about the, the referendum. And what would happen if these things pass. Referendums occur because the legislature hasn't done its job and the people have to step in. But some of these referendums are bad for for the state and for society. And referendum number one is legalizing pot. What they're trying to do is create a big pot business. They'd have farms, corporate farms, to raise the pot and sell it. And it would be taxed and managed by the state like so many other products. 
it'd be administered probably by the Department of Agriculture. But one effect would be that all of the present caregivers, now that's what they call themselves as caregivers, people that raise pot legally in Maine today. And if you're if you uh, can get your doctor to write a prescription for pot, you've got somebody that's uh, having uh, chemotherapy for cancer, and they get nauseous. And when you get nauseous, you know, you know what happens. And then what happens is you, you don't have any appetite, and you're nauseous. And it's, it's, you know, it's a miserable uh, state of affairs. If you use pot, eat it in brownies, smoke it, whatever, however you administer it to yourself, it reduces the nausea. That's a legitimate use. Of course, there are about a dozen other preparations that are also legal that will reduce your nausea, but those other preparations don't cause you to get high. The purpose of taking pot rather than the other preparations is to get high. That's you know, that's why people do it. <laughs> but the thing is that I didn't know until I didn't know this last week, but I know it now, is that all of the present caregivers, which is what they call themselves, would be out of business. They could buy it from a government distributor but they couldn't grow anymore. And like apples and potatoes, they have different varieties. And I talked, I knew one guy who used to work in the mill at Lincoln years ago who said that Maine grew the finest sensimedia marijuana in the whole world. They had developed a strain of marijuana that was very satisfying to pot smokers. And they grew it themselves and they they did this, and it's illegal. And if you've got more than very much of it, you go to jail. Our jails are full. Our jails are full. In order to put somebody in, they got to let somebody out. And one of the, not on this, <laughs> didn't make it on this time, but one of the referendum questions is, can we get $100 million to build another jail? Because we don't have enough jails. And they they always vote that down. Now, why do people vote down jails? Because they'll be able to put more people in jail. And the average Maine citizen says, wait a minute. If they put more people in jail, they'll put my cousin Henry or my brother-in-law Henry in jail, and now I'll have to Take in his deadbeat kids, his bratty kids. I don't want them to take in his bratty kids and leave them out on bail. So, so that's that's the way that's working. Now, the tax increase. People, they always want to have tax increases, and this tax increase is not about schools, despite. The lobby that's that's saying, "Oh, this will this will give us more money for schools." No, not rural schools, not anybody else fifty miles from Portland. If they can get the people in Portland to vote for this, Portland, South Portland, Cape Elizabeth, Yarmouth, all going to have lots of money from the state. They think, but actually, what happens to the money if we vote this tax increase in? the money goes into the general fund. And then they keep their fingers crossed that the legislature will appropriate this money for schools near Portland. It's not going to go out into the country. And that people, you know, I haven't seen any advertising on, on to either for or against. It's kind of a stealth thing. But people usually vote for tax increases. I sat there in the coffee shop one time, and they passed a referendum to spend a pile of money on airports and ports and ferries and stuff. And 
I said, this, you just voted yourself a tax increase. No, no, he says, this is instructions to Augusta on how to spend the money they already have. I said, no, this is new money. You just voted to tax yourself. Oh, you didn't know that. Well, it's true. That's what you're doing. You're voting to tax yourself. Referendum number three, the gun grab. Whoops. I'll turn my phone ringer off. I don't know who that is. I'll call him back later. There. So they uh, I forgot to turn my cell phone off. The uh, referendum question number three is the gun grab. Michael Bloomberg, mayor of New York City, former mayor, has got gigabucks. I mean, this guy is richer than rich. And he's spending a pile of money in Maine to prevent you from loaning your rifle to your nephew when he gets back from Afghanistan. Your nephew comes back from Afghanistan, and he's a really good, safe shooter, an effective soldier, and he's, uh, he gets drawn in the moose lottery. And he's got a, a, a 243, which could kill a moose, but it's not really an appropriate rifle for a moose. You really what you ought to have is 30 caliber or larger, like a 30 out six. That's what I shot my moose with. And I got drawn twice in the moose lottery. I got I shot the first one. My brother-in-law shot the second one. Brother-in-law had cancer, and uh, I said, "Look, I get I put you in the as my sub permittee, and you can't swap some permittees." I said, "You're it. You got to get better." Boy, I tell you, he was became a health food nut, and he lost about 50 pounds, and, and he recovered. And he had uh, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, and he did recover. Some people do, but his motivation and, and dedication and taking care of yourself was a huge factor in recovering. And he shot the moose. And uh, with a 35 Whalen, he worked for Ruger Firearms. In Newport, New Hampshire, retired now, older than I am. And he uh, he shot this large cow moose, no calf with her. And uh, when it was pouring down rain, I mean just pouring straight down. And got out of the truck and, and uh, fired. And when that thirty-five Whalen hit that moose, it was like a laboratory retriever coming out of the water and shaking. Water flew in all directions. That moose just caved. Front legs went down, chin went down, boom. That moose dropped right there. 35 Whalen is a good cartridge. It's a 30-06 necked up to 35 caliber. Like the 358 Winchester, which never became as popular as I expected. They got the 35 Remington, which is a good deer rifle cartridge. The 358 Winchester is a 308 necked up to 35 caliber. Good cartridge, but they're uh, uh, they never did become popular. It's one of those things. A lot of, a lot of deer hunters swear by the 35 Remington, but Mayor Michael Bloomberg does not want you to be able to loan your your 300 Winchester Magnum to your nephew who just got back from Afghanistan. You've got to go to the gun shop when they're open and apply to loan your rifle to your nephew. So on Friday, you go to the gun shop and you get permission to loan your your uh, 300 Magnum to your nephew. He shoots the moose the following Wednesday comes home, you got to go to the gun shop instead of butchering the moose to transfer the 300 Winchester Magnum back to you. That's what they want. This is your nephew. Now, you can loan it to your son if you're in the immediate family, okay, without going to... without going to... Uh, the gun shop. There's a few technicalities, but this thing, there's no appeal. It's like the old Massachusetts law. If you had an unregistered firearm in your vehicle, you go to jail for a year. 
they had a lot of Massachusetts family members. You know, a husband would lose his job. He's going to go to a, go to a jail for a year because the shotgun that he had was not registered. He, maybe he borrowed it from somebody. We had a Maine kid who went down to uh, the amusement park down near Gloucester. I forget the name of it down there, but it's it's an amusement park right near the ocean there. And uh, he had a flat tire, and he pulled over to the side of the road. And he opened up the trunk, and a state trooper come up, and there was a shotgun in the trunk. His father had gone skeet shooting that morning, and the kid didn't know the shotgun was in the trunk, and they went down to the amusement park in Massachusetts, and they arrested the kid. And they were going to put him in jail for a year. Well, Maine state troopers took offense at this. And they started stopping Massachusetts cars left and right. If they were doing 66 miles an hour on the main pike, they got stopped. And they told the governor of Massachusetts at the time, maybe it was Dukakis, I don't know, but it was back then, they they told them, look, you let this kid come back to Maine with no record. We'll forget all about this. Because they would stop in Massachusetts cars left and right on the main pike. And they let the kid go. Money talks. Next one was the minimum wage. Now, I didn't know a lot about the minimum wage. I know that, in my opinion, an employer and his employee should strike a deal on what what the employer is going to pay and what the employee is going to get. And... What I did not not know is that there are 14,500 people in Maine working at minimum wage jobs. 8,500 of them work in restaurants. Waiters, waitresses, short order cooks. In some, a lot of restaurants in Maine, the cook is the one that serves the food, and they get tips. But the minimum wage is... is uh, you know, is the minimum wage for them. And they have an exemption. They get less than the, the standard minimum wage because they get tips. There are 8,500 of these people. And a lot of a lot of restaurant uh, waiters and waitresses, you know, make good money. But on paper, they're getting minimum wage. The other 6,000 people getting minimum wage in Maine are disabled people. You have a student, a young person who is handicapped. Maybe this person has cerebral palsy and is a very intelligent person, but they're limited into what as to what they can do. And they're working. They get minimum wage. Some of these people have have uh, a person that helps them. They make sure that they get to work. They spend time with them at work. And... Uh, there's a name for this job title, and I can't think of it. My wife could tell me. But but these aides that help people work are get paid by the state. But the employee himself or herself uh, gets paid minimum wage to do this work. It's honorable work. These people should have a chance to work. But they cannot compete with the average person that's doing doing that job. So, and these people really should be able able to work. And they need, but the employer is less likely to hire them if they're making 10 bucks an hour than they are 750. I learned this week at Husson that we have 325,000 people in the state of Maine on Social Security. That's their sole source of income. These people were unable to save or chose not to save any money during their lifetime and put it away for a rainy day. They didn't make enough money to keep body and soul together, as the old-timers used to say, heat their house, pay their taxes, maintain their house, buy food and clothing. You know, they just, they were struggling and now they, they've retired, they're no longer working, 
and we have 325,000 people solely dependent on Social Security and state domain. These old folks need to be watched and taken care of by their neighbors. And that happens in a lot of small towns. They, uh, you look out for these people. You know, bring them some wood or uh, make sure they have what they need. Give them a ride to town. Some of these people don't drive, can't afford a car, but they're out there. They're out there in the woods, out of sight, out of mind. Kind of think about this. Take care of these folks. It's better to be doing on a local level than it is at the, at the state level. Rank choice is referendum number five. Rank choice, terrible idea. But like the gun grab, it's unconstitutional. In order to enact the gun grab, you have to change the Constitution because the main state Constitution says the people have a right to keep and bear arms and this right shall not be questioned. I forgot to mention that a few minutes ago. But now we've got rank choice coming up. This is a fad. No state in the nation has rank choice. Nobody. And they got this small group of people that ran around and collected signatures and said, if we had rank choice, we could have prevented Paul LePage from being elected governor. Well, Paul LePage got more votes for governor than any other candidate for governor in the history of the state of Maine. Both times he got reelected because he so loved by the people in the state of Maine. I was his first town chairman. And when I met him, he told about working at the stables and uh, in Lewiston. And the guy that ran the stables you know, took a liking to him and put him to work. And he was cleaning up the stables. And lots of other odd jobs around, around the raceway. Lewiston Raceway is gone now. When I was 14, I was working on a dairy farm, cleaning up behind the cows. I said, Paul, you had the better job. He said, what are you talking about? I said, well, I said, you were cleaning up behind the horses. I was cleaning up behind the cows. Horse shit doesn't splash, cow shit does. I think you can say that on the radio. I don't think the National Board of Censorship is going to pull the plug on this radio station because I said that, but... That's what I said to Paul, and he and I have been friends ever since. You know, Paul's a little rough around the edges. You have to understand where he came from. And But he went to college. One of the people that helped him get into college was John McKernan. And he got into Husson, graduated from Husson, went out to work in the industry, and then he went back to school got a master's degree in business, got an MBA, smart guy, still a little rough around the edges from time to time because he hasn't forgotten where he came from and he hasn't forgotten the people like him. And he is he's loved by the majority of the people in Maine. He drives the liberals absolutely bonkers. It just it puts him right into a stage three hizzy when he talks about the liberals. And he tells the truth. He insulted some legislator, and and, uh, they went absolutely frantic, made national news. But what he said wasn't untruthful, okay? He just pointed the bright light of truth at him, and like a bunch of cockroaches, they scatter when you shine the bright light of truth at them. Ranked choice is a bad idea. It would take a week to count the ballots after an election. You wouldn't know who got elected, including president. They wouldn't know who, how we voted for president because we have ranked choice, and we've got lots of candidates running for president. Not just four. Not just Trump and Hillary and uh, Johnson who doesn't know where 
where Aleppo is in Syria. One of the oldest Christian cities in the entire world is Aleppo, Syria. And uh, and then you got uh, the Green Lady. Can't think of her name at the moment. She's got as much as three percent of the vote nationally. So three percent, you know, can have an influence on the election. But when you have ranked choice, you put down number one. This is my choice for governor or representative. Number two, this is my choice. If it's only two candidates, you know, you get one and two, but you vote for two. Okay, but if you have multiple candidates and Maine's uh, election law encourages multiple candidates because you can get a guy and say, hey, I'm going to run for, for Maine, the Maine House. I'm gonna, they'll give me $4,500 to run for the Maine House. And they call it clean elections, okay? So, and clean elections, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. Clean elections, how can that be a bad thing? So this guy, who's never done anything, runs for the main house. He runs around, he gets 125 signatures from people around the district, and he runs for the main house. They give him $4,500 to spend to run for the main house. Well, he buys lunch and dinner for his buddies. They put gas in their truck so they can ride around and with a sticker on the tailgate that says, vote for Sam. And he spends the $4,500. Has to spend it or turn it back into the state. So they make sure they spend it. Buy a bunch of signs. Hire some. Hire your, your kids and your nephew and nieces to go out and put signs up. And then it's supposed to go around after the election, pick them back up. And we still got cutler signs sitting beside the roadside. <laughs> you see them from time to time. Nobody ever took them down. Yeah. But that's that's our clean election law. And for the Senate, I think it's $18,000 that they give you to run for Senate. Well, that'll buy you lunch at McDonald's a lot of times, and it'll put gas in the truck. And you can put out some flyers. But the election laws are peculiar enough without going to this ranked choice. Because if a whole bunch of people put down candidate dead last, they don't want him to be in there. Okay, the, It's going to come down to a choice between the second and the third place. And eventually you're going to wind up with somebody like Angus King or Elliot Cutler as governor. And that's a disaster. And look what King did to northern Maine. It'll take us a quarter of a century to to recover from him. Now he's in the U.S. Senate. He was sent up here from Delaware to do a job on Maine, and he did it. Closing right in on the end of the show here. I'm going to get into some of this stuff. And what's the environmentalists want to do for Maine uh, next week? There's a lot of stuff and too much too much to cover. But this stuff is pertinent. Appleseed, next weekend, October 1 and 2. Don't forget, you got a good chance to learn some history and encourage your patriotism and learn how to be an accurate shooter and shoot that most at 500 yards. Don't hold on at 6 o'clock. He'll just take some hair off his belly and he won't even stop feeding. This has been the Northern Maine Landman Show on the Constitutional Radio Network. Conscience of Maine broadcast today in Maine on WXME. 780 AM in Monticello, 1700 AM in Lewiston, 88.1 FM in Westbrook and Orono, 96.5 FM in Brewer, Bangor, Maine. It's good weather to bring, get your wood in. Well, cut some firewood, split it, get it in under cover, and stay dry and be good in February. Be safe, and God bless. <laughs>